Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. All right. Good morning. How are you? If you have a Bible, let's open it to Romans chapter 10. We're going to read verses 5 through 13. We're halfway through Romans 10. If you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to use one of the ones that you can find in the rack in front of you and keep that Bible. If you don't own one, it's our gift to you. We'd love for you to keep it and and read it and come back. Or if this isn't the right church for you to find another Bible-believing church where where you can learn about the Lord and learn about His Word. We have been working through this letter to the Romans, and we find ourselves midway through Romans chapter 10. So if you're joining us, joining us for the first time today, I realize that we're right in the middle of something we've been thinking about for a long time, but I think you'll be able to, to get the context and catch up. I want to, before I read the text this morning, give you kind of an outline of where we're going. And, and I think the text this morning asks us three questions. And it's really all about, about salvation and faith. And you, you may be thinking, well, Brad, that's what actually the whole book of Romans is about. I know. It's, like a, it's just a relentless assault on self-justification. That's, that's, what, that's what I think Romans is. It's a kind of, it's a relentless assault. It, it's, like, it's like this team that's running the ball and, and, and they know that the defense can't stop them and they just keep plowing away and they just keep running the ball down the defense's throat. Well, this is, by the way, that's what happened Friday night with Calvary Christian Knights. We, we beat this team that was previously undefeated and we just ran the ball right down their throats. Oh, it was so good. <laughs> Sent those boys home packing with their first loss of the season. And... In many ways, Romans is a kind of assault on our self-justification. That's what it is. And it doesn't let up. It just keeps plowing away. And so we we see more of it in Romans chapter 5 verses, Romans chapter 10 verses 5 through 13. Here's the three questions that I think this text demands of us, is asking us to answer. And these three questions are this. What type of righteousness saves what kind of faith saves, and then who can be saved? What type of righteousness saves? What kind of faith saves? And then who can be saved? Well, let's read the text and then answer those questions. Verse 5, Romans 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if, verse 9, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It's, it's written by you, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit through human authors. And because you have inspired, because you have, you have caused these human authors that wrote these books of the Bible to write down exactly what you intended for us to receive, we know that it is without error. It is unable to err. It's right and true in everything that it speaks to. And it is sufficient for us. It gives us everything we need to know for life and for godliness and for salvation. So Lord, we submit ourselves to the authority of your holy word this morning. I ask that your word that brings life would open the eyes of any that are blind in this room to the beauty of the gospel and that it would strengthen and fortify Christians who need, who all of us that are believing in Jesus need to be reminded and encouraged. We need, we need the windshields of our heart to be cleared from the fog of this week. So help us, Lord, to see your truth. Teach us beautiful things from your word, I pray. And as we come around your table on this first Sunday of October to receive the Lord's Supper, to remember what Jesus has done for his people, may we examine ourselves in light of the gospel, not to push us into ourselves for self-righteousness, but to remind ourselves that it's only through Christ that we can be made one with you. And may we feast on him. May we remember that he died and rose again. And Lord, may we abide in Christ as we have sung this morning. And I pray that you'd help us to do all these things for your glory and for our joy, for the good of all that would listen this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let's just work our way through this text and answer this first question. And I think this first question is answered for us in the first few verses, verses 5 through 8. What type of righteousness, what type of righteousness saves? Paul says there in verse 5 of, of our text in Romans 10, he says, he's, he's quoting now in verses 5 through 8, a few verses from Leviticus, one verse from Leviticus, and, and a couple verses from Deuteronomy. And so anytime Paul's using the Old Testament, it's, it's really important for us to understand the context. And so let's look at verse 5. He says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And so he's referring to this Old Testament law that God gave Israel. And here's what I want you to see about really the whole Old Testament in a way. Anytime the Old Testament is referred to or anytime we read it and we see this beautiful narrative of God's dealing with Israel, think of it this way, that Israel is a kind of picture of the Christian life. In fact, this is what, what John Piper says. He's a pastor that, that I greatly respect up in Minnesota. He says that Israel is the historical theater where the drama of every human soul is played out for all to see. So when we, we, when we look at God's dealing with Israel and his rescue of Israel despite their disobedience and Israel's struggle in the Old Testament, it's, it's a kind of picture of the Christian life and how salvation works. And in, 
In Paul's quoting of the Old Testament here, specifically Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we see in the life of Israel what all of us are prone to in our very lives. That we are prone, we we really have a, a, a decision to make between two types of righteousness. Righteousness that comes by the law or righteousness that comes by faith. Righteousness by law or righteousness by faith. And in verse 5, he's talking about this righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does these commandments shall live by them. And so that's, that's exactly what Moses says in Leviticus 18. I'll flip there. We'll have it on the screen. He says in Leviticus 18 that in verse 5, you, this is Moses speaking for God to the nation of Israel, you, sh- you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And so God, through Moses, has given his Old Testament people this law. And remember the purpose of the law for us in our, in our sort of modern sensibilities. We may read portions of the Old Testament law and it may seem kind of archaic to us. Or it seems like it, there's some strange things going on there. But, but just to simplify it for you, for the purposes of, of today and understanding it, the Old Testament law was given to God's people in the Old Testament not so that God would kind of could mess with his people to sort of make life harder on them, but he gave it to them as an expression of his holiness and to set his people apart from the rest of the nations so that they would live distinct so that the other nations could look at their life and they would see the God that is sufficient and good in compared to their false gods. So even these laws that may seem archaic and strange to us had specific purposes in the life of Israel to set them apart from the nations so that they could be a kind of city set on a hill so that God would use the collective life of Israel to be a blessing to the nations so that they would be drawn to him. So really, the, think of it this way, discipleship is a kind of evangelistic witness. As the people of God live according to the the statutes of God, it should have a kind of aroma on the onlooking world. That was true for Israel. And by the way, that's also true of us. So our life together as a local church, it's not just, we're not just doing life in a kind of vacuum. We're, we're, We're to be a kind of city on a hill. And Paul is saying here in Leviticus, he's quoting Moses, that the person who does these laws shall live by them. But the problem is, is uh, how's that going for you, Israel? How is living for God actually working out, uh, uh, keeping all of his law? It's not going very well. How's that going for you and me, living up to all of God's standards? It's not going very well, is it? No one can. Paul is making that point. He's made that point in, in Romans. In fact, In Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, remember where he says that the mind that is set on the flesh, don't have time to develop this, but I think when Paul uses that phrase, the mind that is set on the flesh, he's talking about an unbeliever. He says the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so this law that God gives is meant to display his holiness It's meant to convict us of our sin. It's meant to illuminate our separation from God. And even though it can give life, the the whole point of Romans is that none of us can actually live up to that law. 
And that's what Paul is saying here in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 5, as he's quoting Leviticus chapter 18. And then he contrasts it with the righteousness that comes not by the law, but by faith. Look at verse 6 of our text, Romans 10. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Okay, so what's Paul doing in verses 6 through 8? Well, he just quoted in verse 5 a verse from Leviticus to show us really the impossibility of righteousness based on the law. In a sense, if we, if we could live up to it, it would bring life, but we can't. We all know that. Paul's made that point all the way through Romans. And now he contrasts it with righteousness that comes by faith. And now he's going to quote two passages from Deuteronomy in verses 6, 7, and 8. So to understand what Paul's saying in verses 6, 7, and 8, we need, we need to read those verses in Deuteronomy to understand the context of how Paul applies them. So Paul is going to take an Old Testament verse and he's going to apply it to this context of the gospel. So verse 6, he says, contrasting righteousness based on faith with righteousness based on law-keeping, he says, righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart. Well, where does that come from? It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 9, and we'll have it on the screen there. Just follow me, just follow me as you see it on the screen. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses is speaking for God to the people, and he is saying something very important. He says in Deuteronomy 9 verses 4, do not say in your heart, and that's where Paul is quoting from in our text in Romans 10, and then that's all Paul says, but when Paul says just that portion of the verse, it would be a reminder to Israel that this is the text that he's referring to. And what is he saying, don't say in your heart? Well, let's keep reading the context of Deuteronomy 9, verse 4. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust him out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so right away Paul is contrasting righteousness that comes by law that says I can do it but of course we can't, with righteousness that is based on faith. And, and what is righteousness that's based on faith? He says, it doesn't say, don't say in your heart, what Israel was saying in their heart in Deuteronomy chapter 9, that we're in this land because of our righteousness. No, you're not. It's because of God's righteousness and because of the word that he swore to your forefathers. In other words, righteousness that is based on faith is not a righteousness that looks inward and says that I'm where I am today because God owes me something. That, that's, that's what Paul is saying. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30. He goes on to say, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Okay, so Paul, in the second half of verse 6 and 7 and 8, then goes in his mind to Deuteronomy chapter 30 
and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14, and applies it to the gospel. So let's, let's read Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 13. And this is God, through Moses, putting before Israel, commanding them really graciously to obey him. And this is what he says in verse 11 of Deuteronomy 30, where Paul is quoting in our text in Romans 10. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that we should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But, verse 14, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, what I just read there in Deuteronomy is part of the Old Testament. But doesn't it sound like a lot of grace? Doesn't it, sound, it doesn't say, it, it's, it, it's not a picture of, a, of, a, of an angry God, God whose arms are folded saying, do this on your own power or I will smoke you. It's saying, do this, but don't think that it's out. It's, it's there. It's there for you. It's, it's in your mouth. It's in your heart. And why is it there for you? Well, go up in Deuteronomy chapter 30 to verse 6. Look at what he says about this law in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. He says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So Deuteronomy 30, in the middle of God giving his law, is a kind of shadow. It's like pointing forward to the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul does. He applies this command to obey in Deuteronomy chapter 30. I set before you life or death. Choose life, not death. Do, do this, do this, and you can do this because it's, it's come to you, it's in you. And he applies this shadow of Deuteronomy chapter 30, and he says what this is actually pointing to is Christ. So he's saying, don't say in your heart, how am I going to ascend to heaven and be righteous like God? That's to bring Christ down. And don't say, who will descend into the abyss and suffer the punishment for us? That's to bring Christ up from the dead. Only he can do that. But what does it say? It says the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart heart. Do you see what's happening here? Paul is taking this Old Testament text and he is applying it to the gospel. He's saying that righteousness comes by faith in Christ and in what he has done, not what you have, you can do. So in other words, even the law and all of its commands was never meant to be something that we could actually save ourselves by. It was meant to point us outside of ourselves so that we would rely on God who alone can change our hearts so that we can actually obey him. Do you see that? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying that the righteousness that comes by faith doesn't look inward. It looks upward, outward to Christ. And then in verse 8 he says, this, this is the word of faith that we proclaim. So just a, a, a pause here before we move on to the second question to apply this. How do, we, how, do we take, how do you take God's commands? How, do we turn them into legalism? Do we try and make them about ourself and our self-righteousness? That, that, that's, do you see how the Old Testament is really pointing towards the New Testament? That 
that the law is never meant to justify you. It's really meant to bring you to a place where you realize that you can't justify yourself so that God would circumcise your heart and you are able to say, Lord, help me. You, you have to come near to me. I can't come near to you. And he, he, we even see a kind of shadow of it in Deuteronomy 30, which Paul then clarifies for us. And he says, this, this is Christ. It's not righteousness based on what I have done, but what on, upon what Christ has done. Listen to how Paul gives a kind of autobiographical depiction of this in his own life. Let me read Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. He says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I didn't really need to read that verse, but I wanted to start there in verse 1 because I like the point that Paul is making. He's saying, I know I repeat myself a lot, but it's good for you. <laughs> Did you guys get that? Okay. I mean, sometimes in Romans, I've, I felt like the clown at the circus who like crawls in the cannon and he just gets shot out. That's like he's like a one-trick pony. He's like, all right, do it again. Crawls back in the cannon, boom, gets shot out, crawls back in the cannon. It, and isn't that sort of instructive? We always, we always want something new. You know, give me a fresh word. You're a sinner. God is holy. Jesus died for your sins. Trust in him. Amen. Give me something new. You're a sinner. God is holy. Jesus died, and you must trust in him. I need something fresh. You're a sinner. God is holy. Jesus died. And yet, now, we got to apply it, and that we, I understand that. But listen, so we didn't really need verse 1, but we needed verse 1. Okay, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. And what he's saying here is he's talking about those people who were requi requiring Jewish uh, believers in Jesus who hadn't quite come all the way with the gospel, who were requiring circumcision for Greek people in order to truly be part of God's people. And Paul is saying, no, that's adding something to salvation. This Old Testament sign that pointed to the covenant people of God has been fulfilled in Jesus. Now you don't have to do anything to be part of God's people but faith in Christ. So don't let people, don't let people tell you that you need to mutilate yourself in order to be right with God. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So basically, Paul's going to say, if anybody got like some legalism card that they can push, pull down here and say, hey, I, I, I've got a right to think by my own life that I could be right with God, nobody more than me. He says, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And look at how he interprets all of his righteousness based on the law. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, listen to this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that before God opened my eyes, I was like my countrymen who missed the purpose of the law. I thought that my law abiding, which by the way was better than all of your law abiding, that's what Paul is saying in Philippians 3, I was mistaken, I was blinded, and I thought that my law abiding could produce in me a righteousness based on my works. But I missed it, like my countrymen are missing it. And I missed the fact that all of this law was meant not to push me inside of myself, but outside of myself, so that I could see that I need Christ and his perfect law abiding, his perfect law, his righteousness, which when I trust in him gets, to be, gets credited to me. That's what Paul is saying. So what's the application to us? Because you're thinking, Brad, I'm not, I'm not a first century Jew. Ah, but, but remember what Piper said, that Israel is like a historical theater that is a kind of picture of every human soul. I'm not as bad as that other person. I, I, was, I mean, I'm, I was raised in church, and I sort of know this. And, and, and I, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I mean, I need a little help. I, I recognize that I'm a sinner. But, but it's a kind of it's a kind of neutered self-analysis where we think, you know, I just, you know, I'm kind of basically in the fold and now my relationship with God is all about me kind of trying to make myself a little bit more useful to him. Friends, that is death to the gospel in your life. Regardless of whether you are a religious Jew or a cultural Bible Belt Christian that seems to have your life together on the outside, or whether you're a person that is a million miles away from God, the point that Paul is making is that the law comes, the holiness of God comes, and convicts all of us and levels the ground at the foot of the cross. Now, righteousness is not by the law. It never has been, and all of it's meant to point us to a righteousness that exists outside of ourselves with this faith in Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that you... you this is the type of righteousness that you need. All right, well, let's keep going. Then second question. What kind of faith, what kind of faith then saves? Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now this is a powerful verse. And this is a well-known verse. And this is also a verse that at times I think is kind of um, sloganized. Where people just sort of plop down in the middle of Romans 10. And, and they, they sort of make it into a kind of formula. That if somebody just merely confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And gives like emotional and intellectual assent to Jesus being raised from the dead, that they will be saved. But it's more than that. That's, that's not all that's going on here. This is a commonly abused verse. It's almost become kind of like an incantation for some people, kind of like a magic spell, like a, ra like a spell like a rabbit's foot. Like, well, I, you know, at one point in my life, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, and I, you know, I, I, I give cognitive assent to that, and so I'm, I'm okay with him. But it's, it's much more than that. 
Several things that we should notice about the type of faith that Paul is speaking about here that saves or justifies. First is its content. The type of faith that saves, I want you to notice its content. What does he say about it? He says that it's the type of faith that confesses that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. So Jesus is Lord. He's not just a good man. It's not just a a cultural ethic. It's not just a way of life. Think about this. It is God becoming a man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. There is one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. So think about just with that phrase that when you confess that Jesus is Lord, it's not just a title, it's a substance of who he is. It's God in the flesh who has lived, become a man, lived a perfect life, borne the wrath of his father, absorbed it, and he's the only one that could absorb it because he is fully man and fully God, and he is infinitely holy, so he has enough holiness to satisfy all of the wrath of God for all of the sins of all of those that would ever trust in him, and Jesus is Lord. He's not just a good man or a rabbi. He's Lord. And if you're a Christian, you you must believe that. Christianity is not just a culture, not just another option amongst a buffet of worldviews. It is the good news that God the Father sent God the Son to be a man and to die and to bear his wrath and then rise again. It's very specific. It's, It's very specific. And notice how, how ambiguous our culture wants to say, it's fine, it's fine if we talk about God or the man upstairs or something sort of nebulous and silly like that. But it's offensive to our culture when we use the word Jesus because then it gets specific. We're talking then about a triune God. And d- d- American Christians get all excited when somebody in the public sphere, especially athletes, kind of offer some sort of ambiguous reference to God at the end of a game, usually associated with their team winning. But then if, if, you, if you insert Jesus, who is God in the flesh, and this, is what, this is what's embedded in this, this belief here, who's God in the flesh, who bore the wrath of God that is barreling down across all humanity, that died for that wrath and rose again. And now those and only those who trust in Jesus, Acts 4.12, there's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. That Jesus is the one that we must have faith in. That's what Paul is saying. And then what does he say? He says that he, that we also believe that God raised him from the dead. That he didn't just die as a sacrifice on the cross. Anybody can die, but only God can defeat death. Jesus was raised for our justification. That's what what Paul is saying here, that he got up from the grave. He died and now is alive. And Paul is saying that this type of faith, it's not a subjective faith. It's an objective faith. It's not based on feelings or your strength, but it's based on Christ and his. That's what Paul is saying here. 
And we get so caught up in this language where he says mouth and heart. I think he's just referring, it's just a a way of referring to the totality, the comprehensiveness of of the person. What's in your heart, if it's truly there, is going to come out in your mouth. That's what he's saying. Don't make it a formula. Like, okay, what do I, I guess, like, we, we act like it's a combination lock, and we're, we're going between periods, and we're, we're trying to get our books, you know, eight to the right, 20 to the left, like, mouth, heart. No, Paul, that's not what Paul is saying, American Christians. He's saying that there's this totality. If it's in your heart, it's going to come out of your mouth. It's not just, oh, I say the right words, I did the incantation, and now I kind of believe it, sort of. No, there's this trust, there's this resting on Christ, who is God in the flesh, who was raised for our justification. That's the type of faith that saves. It's specific. It's exclusive. It's Christ and Christ alone. We sang it earlier. Do you see it? I think you should actually be more excited about this. This is what the London Baptist Confession of Faith says. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which was written, ironically enough, in 1689. Chapter 14 on saving faith. Listen to this. This is is a bunch of English Puritans. And this is a a doctrinal statement that they came up with that I, I think is excellent. This is what they say about this type of saving faith contrasted with just general faith. But the principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. So, what Paul is speaking about here in verses 9 and 10 is it's, it's faith that's centered on Christ, what he's done. Not just an ambiguous faith in a kind of deity that sort of makes everything work out. No. Resting on a holy God who has sent a perfect son to become a real man, to live a real obedient life in our place, to absorb his wrath, and to be raised by God the Spirit so that all those that would trust in him would be justified, sanctified, and have eternal life. It, it puts the full weight of its hope, not in what we have done, but in what Christ has done. But lest any of us now, in our minds, because we're prone to do this, think that that means that my faith needs to be a kind of strong faith in Christ, these brothers that wrote this now, as they've put our attention on Christ, they're going to come back to our hearts and, and, and guard us from putting too much emphasis on ourself, on our faith, as if it's our faith alone that saves us, rather than the object of our faith. So this is what they say. This faith, this is such encouraging news for weak Christians. This faith may exist in varying degrees. It's talking about saving faith so that it may be either weak or strong. That's important. That's that's really important. You know what? In God's providence, some of you have just, by God's grace, been given a kind of strong constitution. You know, you just, you had a wholesome home, you had God-fearing parents, 
There weren't a lot of obstacles in your life. And you're just, you're kind of a strong person. And praise God for that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I thank God for that. To whom much is given, much is required. Don't be, don't be a self-absorbed Christian. Praise God. But then there are some of us just in God's providence that our life has been different. It's been hard. And we, we you know, we, we kind of come, we come limping all the time. You know, they're just different people are just made differently. And I think that's what they're getting at here. So what, what, and what happens is, is some of us perceive ourselves that way and we think, oh, I'm too weak to ever really believe in God in that way. And what they're saying is that no, you're not saved by the strength of your faith. You're saved by the strength of the object of your faith, which is Jesus. So sometimes it's weak and sometimes it's strong. God has strange and mysterious providences for causing you to be one or the other or somewhere in between. Look at what it says in the next sentence. Yet even in its weakest form, it is a different kind or nature. It, meaning saving faith, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. Now, the English Puritans didn't believe that somebody could be a temporary believer. That was their kind of old English way of referring to somebody who seemed to be a confessor, but ultimately fell away and was ultimately never a Christian. Okay, the English Puritans, like I think you should believed in the eternal security of all true believers. That's just their sort of way of stating it. So what, what they're saying is, is that this, this, even in its weakest form, the faith that God gives a person when he saves him, even if it's not as strong as the, as the brother or sister sitting next to you, it's of a different kind and it's still strong enough to save you. Therefore, faith may often be attacked and weakened, but listen to this, it gains the victory. It matures in many ways to the point that they attain full assurance through Christ. No, it matures in many to the point that they attain full assurance in Christ. Many, not all, who is both the founder and perfecter of our faith. In other words, there's going to be some of us who will struggle with assurance all through the life. But do you see the point that Paul is that, that, that they're making and that Paul is making? Is that this faith, even if it's as small as a mustard seed, is able to save. And it's a faith in Christ, in what he has done, not what you have done. And it doesn't depend on the strength even of your faith. It's like the man who cried out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. So, so just a few points of application before we ask the final question and end and come to the table. Do you feel weak? Springer prayed this in his prayer. Do you, do you, are you, do you have this abiding voice in your back of your mind that says that you could never be right with God or you could never get over that habit or you could... You could never truly be reconciled to him. Friends, that is a lie. That's a lie. Jesus is, is there. He's, his, it's come to you. It's, it's in your mouth and it's in your heart. Don't look into yourself. Look to him. Which then leads us to our third question. Who can be saved? Verses 11 through 13. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. He's quoting an Old Testament verse there from Isaiah 26. You know, I just think about that idea of not being put to shame. Think about that. You know, I, I think about 
how much of our energy is given towards saving face publicly. And let's, let's be honest, we're not, we're not going to pass the microphone. But if we did and we said, okay, tell us your deepest and darkest secret. This would be a, this would be a tough day, wouldn't it? <laughs> tough. I mean, come on. There's, there are things in every one of our lives that would cause all of us deep, deep shame if it was to be exposed. And what Paul is saying here is that when you trust in Christ, there will be no shame because Christ has taken your shame on the cross. Think about the freedom of that. Think of, I mean, even... even even those of us that are believers, think of the energy that we exert to sort of make ourselves look like something that we aren't really in public. Is, isn't, isn't that what we do? And then think of being free from that. Think of being free from that. And th- that's what's coming in our final glorification, that we will be free from shame. There will be nothing that will cause me to blush. There will be nothing that I can be embarrassed about. Not that those things haven't happened, but God has removed them as far as the east is from the west, and there's coming a day when it will finally and fully be sealed, and I will have none of that, and it will be accounted to Christ who's removed it, and his righteousness will be given to us. Friends, meditate on that. Meditate on that. And let that truth drive you in your interactions with other people. Don't we just try and make ourselves, we try and make ourselves look better, we exert, we, we do all this. And the gospel, when we apply it and we dwell on it, frees us from that. Because we don't have to try and be somebody that we aren't. Do you see that? And then he says in verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. And this is the point that he's been making in Romans 9, and all the way through Romans, really, that the gospel is not just for the ethnic Jew, but it's for the spiritual Jew. And spiritual Jews are both Jews and Greeks, those who are trusting in Christ. So now, what it means to be a person of God is not to be in the Old Testament ethnic covenant community of Israel, but to be in the New Testament covenant community of Christ. And that is for all who will call upon the name of the Lord. And there is no second class citizen in the kingdom of God. Because he bestows his riches on all who call on him. And then in verse 13, he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And next week, we'll get into the last portion of the chapter where he says, How then will they call on them whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless somebody goes and preaches to them? And let's remember what we just read in Romans chapter 9, where it says that salvation depends on him who wills and not on him It depends on God who wills and not on him who exerts in their own strength. So it's God who elects. But whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So call on him, friends. Call on him. 
despair of yourself. That's what the law is meant to do. It's, and it's not far off from you. It's not something you have to climb the ladder to heaven and bring down or go down into the depths to bring up. But it's come to you. The gospel's here. Call on him, dear one. Call on him. That's the hope of the gospel. Yes, God must do it. But God, God is putting it right before you right now. Call on him. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Believe and look away from yourself. That's what Paul is saying. And who's the type of person that can be saved? Not this particular person. Not that particular person. Not a Jew. Not a Gentile. Not a rich person. Not a poor person. Not a person who was raised in church. Not whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's not out there. It's here. It's before you. He's putting it before you. Eat is what he's saying. Eat. Let's end with that idea of eating. This is what Jesus says in John 6. And it's appropriate as we come to the table. Remember what Paul has said. He's saying the word of faith, this gospel, it's near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm knocking on your door. I'm, I'm putting it in your mouth. Feast on it. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it. Don't look outside. Don't look inside. Don't see what you can do. Just take what I'm giving to you. That's what Jesus says in John 6, starting in verse 52. Then the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? And remember, he talked about his flesh being the blood of life, and they were actually taking him literally. And he's saying, no, he, you know, he's, he's going to show them that he's actually speaking symbolically, that they must feast on his work. How can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Of course, we know that Jesus is speaking figuratively about trusting in his life, his work, his sacrifice, and not in ourselves. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I, and I live because of the Father, so whoever, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So do you see what Jesus, Jesus, doesn't this sound just like what Paul is saying? The word has come to you. This bread has come down from heaven. You don't have to climb a ladder to get it. It's come down to you. And in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But remember what, what the law said? This is not too hard for you. It's come to you. But Jesus, verse 61, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Listen to verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. I think verse 63 is a kind of summary of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 10. That we are saved by faith. Righteousness comes by faith. It's something that the spirit works in us, not something that we achieve ourselves. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
all who call on him will be saved. They will never be put to shame. The object of their faith will be Jesus. It will not be their law keeping. And this is really, really good news. As we prepare to come to the table, in just a moment we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And if you are a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to come to the table. We'll have usher stationed throughout the sanctuary with the tray of bread and the cup. And if you are a believer in Jesus, you're invited to come to this table. But if you're not trusting in Jesus, you shouldn't partake of this meal. Not because we want to intentionally exclude you or not love you, but because we love you, we don't want you to do something that would testify of a belief that you don't yet have. We don't, we don't want to do that to you. This is a meal for believers. So if you're trusting in Jesus, you're welcome to this table. And as Springer will lead us in a moment to receive the bread and the cup together, what we are to do when we come to this table is we're to examine ourselves. N not to cause us to say, well, how righteously have I lived as if God is going to be more or less pleased with me, but to realize afresh how we need Christ. How it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It's meant to send us afresh when we come to the table and examine ourselves. It's not meant to send us into ourselves, into self-righteousness, but afresh and again outside of ourselves to looking again to Christ who alone is our hope. So we come and we wait for one another. And we remember that He alone can reconcile and has reconciled those of us that are trusting in Him to God. Let me pray, and then the worship team will come and lead us, and we'll receive the table together. Father, it, as Jesus has said, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And when the Spirit he gives life, He gives a faith that is based on Jesus' righteousness, His life his lordship, his resurrection. Lord, I know there are weak people in this room. There's at least one of them because I know I often feel weak. Remind me, Lord, that I will not be put to shame on that day. Remind me, Lord, of how rich the good news of the gospel is, how freeing it is from my continuing attempts at self-justification and do the same for my friends. And for any in this room who came in trying to achieve a righteousness by the law, trying to ascend into heaven or descend into the abyss through their own effort, Lord, finally give them eyes to see outside of themselves and to see Jesus and put their hope in him. As we come around this table, I pray that we would feed on Christ, that we would be reminded that he alone is sufficient. In Jesus' name, amen.